Welcome to the number one cookbook podcast, Cookery by the Book, with Susie Chase. She's just a home cook in New York City, sitting at her dining room table, talking to cookbook authors. My name is Abra Behrens, and my most recent cookbook is called Grist, a practical guide to cooking beans, grains, seeds, and legumes. Before diving into this book, I'd like to thank my new sponsor, Bloomist. Bloomist creates and curates simple, sustainable products that inspire you to design a calm, natural refuge at home. I'm excited to announce they've just introduced a new tabletop and kitchen collection that's truly stunning. Surround yourself with beautiful elements of nature when you're cooking, dining, and entertaining, and make nature home. Visit Bloomist.com and use the code COOKERY20 to get 20% off your first purchase or click the link in the show notes. Now on with the show. So you wrote in Grist, rarely am I enticed by a recipe and then seek out the things I need to make it. That kind of blew my mind and I would love to hear more about that. Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me back. I, you know, we're avid podcast listeners in our kitchen and cookery by the book every week. It's one of the faves. And so it's a real treat to be back. But yeah, so I'm not much of a recipe follower. And so that's, I think, probably part of it. But it's also just like the thing that makes me want to cook are different ingredients. Oftentimes, you know, at least with grains and legumes, I have a wall in my kitchen that has a bunch of jars that like, you know, kind of shallow shelves and a bunch of jars with these pulses in them. And oftentimes dinner will be kind of like, okay, this is what's in my fridge. And I'll look at the wall and be like, oh, I do have those black lentils. That sounds good. I'll cook those up, you know, that sort of thing. It's rare for me to kind of flip through either, you know, a a website or a magazine and say, oh, that sounds really good. I'm going to buy all of those things and then schedule a time to make that thing in my kitchen. It just, I'm just not that good of a planner. And so, yeah, that's kind of how it and it ends up being really focused on the ingredients as the kind of enticing factor, if that makes sense. So Ruffage was about your experience growing the vegetables and grist is all about things you haven't grown. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about gathering farmers and growers stories for this cookbook? Yeah, that was one of the first nuts to crack for this book for me was that I wanted Ruffage to sort of contextualize these ingredients, you know, mostly to mirror my own sort of understanding of them that came about through growing them. And so, and I really loved the storytelling that was in Refuge. And I was struggling with how are we going to do that for this book? You know, I've got a couple of things about, you know, like in the corn chapter, there's a story about words and how polenta gets used instead of cornmeal mush, which is the older, you know, Midwestern term for polenta. And so, you know, there were a couple of stories like that, but then I thought, you know, what's really missing is this sense of how these ingredients are grown. And then it dawned on me, it's because I don't grow them. None of us really do because it doesn't make sense. If you grow all of your raised beds in even the biggest garden, by the time you get the wheat berries out and mill it, you'd have like a cup of flour. And so I was like, well, how are we going to tell these farmer stories or how do we contextualize this and bring to light some of these invisible jobs? And then it occurred to me, just ask them. (laughs) 
<laughs> and so thankfully, uh, you know, I live in rural Michigan. One of the people who's profiled is my cousin, Matt, who's an edible bean grower. So that's really where it started was wanting to talk to him about what his farm cycle is like. And then also, you know, Michigan is the second most agriculturally diverse state in the nation. And that means we have a lot of growers. And so it occurred to me that farmers are not a monolith. How do we showcase the, you know, the different experiences that different farmers have? And there is a woman, an amazing woman in Detroit, Jerry Hebron, who owns Oakland Avenue Farm. And she is also growing effectively beans in Michigan, but she's growing Crowder peas and which are like a field legume. And she's growing them in the center of Detroit and growing them for her community as sort of a tool to achieve some of the things to help resolve some of the inequities she sees in her community of lack of access to fresh fruits and vegetables and beans in this case, community engagement, providing, you know, employment opportunities for people who struggle to find traditional jobs and job training skills, things like that. And I was like, these two farms are vastly different but they're both growing beans in Michigan. And that feels really important to understand. Yes. Jerry Hebron was one of my favorite interviews in the cookbook. And I think that conversation really brought to light the difference between urban and rural growers. And I feel like urban farms rely heavily on community involvement. Yeah, I think the intention is is 100% different. And that's not to say one is better than the other, one is right, one is wrong. They're both using food to solve different problems. And, and I agree. I think that that conversation is such a valuable one because it showcases, you know, people <laughs> say, oh, food is political or food is you know, brings people together. Well, those are all sort of hollow statements until you really get into why. And I think, uh, you know, someone like Kim Severson from the New York Times always says every story has a food angle and it's because food touches absolutely everything in our society. It touches inequality, labor practices, immigration policy, economics, both on the macro and micro level, just absolutely everything. And, And so it really is a value tool to both assess some of these issues and also to to fix some of them. Um, So I think it's a really important thing to understand, you know, what the successes and hurdles of these growers are kind of across the spectrum. In the cookbook, you talk about how grains and legumes are perfect candidates for batch cooking, but the idea of eating lentil soup for the next few days is daunting. So you have some interesting tips to avoid that in your variations section, which I love. Thanks. Yeah, I was thinking a lot about batch cooking with this um, for a couple of reasons. One, there, there happened to be on Twitter, I sort of witnessed a thread that was uh, pro-batch cookers versus anti-batch cookers, which is a funny like set of camps to have evolved. And basically somebody saying, I never batch cook anything because it's so boring and it always goes to waste. And it occurred to me that restaurants batch cook, but no one thinks of it as batch cooking. It's prepping, it's bringing ingredients to 80% of ready and then finishing what they're going to become in the moment, like when something is ordered. And I'm constantly trying to find ways to bring 
like a chef or restaurant mentality to people in their kitchens. It's, it's difficult, but it's also, it's kind of like figuring out those nuggets that work for folks. And so for me, it kind of dawned on me when my sister made, I think like two gallons of lentil soup and then was eating it every day and just bemoaning it. And it occurred to me that if she had cooked off some lentils, then she could have a number of different meals and not worry so much about like the monotony of it and could have ended that week with lentil soup. Uh, you know, and so just thinking about it kind of in a, a slightly different way. So that's what those variations are. It's how to take something, cook it really simply to start, and then different suggested ideas for how it could show up throughout your week. Grist is a comprehensive guide through 29 different grains and legumes. You give credit to where the grain originated. So the word grist, the title of this cookbook, I had never heard before. Can you talk about the word grist? I almost hesitated to use it because it's the act of milling something. And so, you know, in a lot of towns, they would have a grist mill. Um, and so I always knew it as that, as like an adjective for, a, you know, a community mill. And what I liked about it is that it was indicative of how these, a lot of these ingredients are used. It also kind of has a colloquial side of something to chew on or something to think about, which I found this book to be really kind of heavy on as I was writing it. I mean, it was more, much more research for me and much more learning for me than with Ruffage. Ruffage was like, here's this topic that I feel like I know a good deal about and I want to convey that. And with Grist, it was like, what is the legacy of wheat? Why are there so many different variables to this? Or I massively overcooked buckwheat the first time I made it because I just assumed that it would take an hour to cook because it has like a kind of hard <laughs> reputation. And so I was really learning along the way. So it was kind of grist for my own mill of thinking about these things. Um, and then I think truth be told, I really wanted to call the book either fodder or silage to continue this sort of tongue in cheek joke of um, something that doesn't sound good, but is actually good. <laughs> you know, like eating whole grains. I feel like people are always like rolling their eyes at. And uh, the, the much wiser folks at Chronicle said, absolutely not. <laughs> I'm not using those titles. And so uh, this is our happy medium. And you also highlight invisible jobs like your seed cleaner, Carl Wagner, who you work with at Grainer Farms. Yeah, that was the other thing that I found so fascinating about this book. And again, tied to the pandemic and sort of all of a sudden, all of these essential jobs that people maybe didn't think that much about before they we deemed them essential. Carl is a good friend of our farm, and I didn't know that his job even existed until I was working here. And what his job is, is, you know, to get a bag of flour, the farmer has to plant the seed, grow it, and then harvest it. And those long amber waves of grain go through a combine and the combine cuts them down, separates the wheat berries from the rest of the plant. 
and then stores those wheat berries and gets them into kind of a storage bin. You know, then it goes to a mill, but there's this seed cleaning process that has to happen. And that's because the wheat seed or the wheat berries um, still have a lot of debris in them. And there's also a, you know, a good amount of damage that can come just from that harvesting. So what Carl does is he takes you can kind of think of them like air hockey tables and passes the seed through these varieties of screens and air hockey tables uh, in order to kind of separate out the good seed from, I guess, the bad, um, which could be anything from, you know, cracked and broken ones are going to be lighter than the whole seed. And so when they pass through the air tables, will blow off the top or they are lighter than rocks and stones, which are easy to get into the mix. And so the rocks and stones sit and the wheat seed bubbles up. And then when it passes through screens, all of these seeds have specific sizes. And if there's say weed seed, or if the, you know, say that field had corn growing in it the year before, you might get some stray corn in the mix. And then that's going to be so much bigger than a wheat berry. And so it won't be able to pass through the screen. So it's this very specific job that is highly skilled, that I don't think anybody really knows that much about. And Carl, I think, is a really fascinating character because I'm also so curious how we're having a, you know, major issues with succession for farmers and what happens to these farms if their children don't want to take them over. And he is, a, I think he's a fourth generation farmer. I can't remember off the top of my head. But, you know, he was confronted with this idea of, I live on this family farm and I want to keep farming. What is my path going to be to continue to be a part of, of this farming community? And so he, you know, is an agronomist uh, by trade, but then decided, got really interested in seed cleaning and seed saving and seed stock. And so he, that's where he has added that to his family's business. And I just think he's, you know, an example of an incredibly smart, incredibly specialized skills, talented person that I don't think as consumers, we hear that much about that often. How was that first meeting with him? Were you like, Carl, I didn't even know you existed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, thankfully, I had met him before I had to interview him. Uh, Wesley Reith is the grain grower at Grainer, um, or he manages that program. And so he knew Carl um, and had developed a relationship with him. So I think like to kind of piggyback on that relationship. But yeah, I mean, it was that I basically was like, I don't know anything about this. And so tell me about it. Maybe I just think that's a valuable thing in life to be able to say, I don't know anything about this, but I'm really curious. So I want to learn about it. And I think that this kind of sums up curiosity and food as a whole. The look and feel of this book is so similar to Roughage. Did you work with the same team this time? I did. And that I think is one of the greatest things is that I I knew that I wanted this book to be a sibling book to Roughage, but then it was kind of twofold the positives, one of which was that everybody who worked on Roughage came back and wanted to work on this one again. So same photographer, same stylist, same illustrator, same design team, same editorial team, all of that stuff. And that's really meaningful to me because it means that people felt like their work was well represented and that 
they enjoyed working on the project. They felt like it was worthwhile. But then also it gave us the ability to just get better at what we do. Roughage was my first cookbook. I don't work in food media. I've never ghostwritten a cookbook. I've never, I had done like one photo shoot for, I think it was for Quaker Oats, you know, beforehand. And so I had really no idea how to do this and was so reliant on instincts and uh, guidance from other people. And the best example that I have for this about how we kind of came to this project in a new spot from our experience with Ruffage was that the photography team, Emily Berger and Molly Hayward, they were really proud of the photos in Ruffage, but they didn't love the chapter headers. They didn't feel cohesive to them. They felt a little bit happenstance. And so they came to the shoots with this idea of how to do the chapter headers differently. So we shot all of the chapter headers in one, like one after another in one day in June. And Molly just took these things that are not inherently super differentiated, you know, wheat berries versus oats versus buckwheat. I mean, they're, they all kind of look the same. And she did an amazing job of figuring out how to lay them out and style them so that they look engaging and different and, and really showcase how each of these grains looks. And then similarly, Lucy Engelman is the illustrator. And, you know, I didn't really know exactly what to ask her for with Ruffage. And so a lot of her illustrations end up being kind of like little doodles in the margins. And she's such a talented detailed infographic specialist. So I was like, okay, these doodles are great. They also don't serve that much of a purpose and we have limited page numbers. So let's really leverage Lucy's skill to convey a lot of information in these sh- in a short page length. And so she did these amazing infographics that explain very complex issues, you know, beautiful and on a page or two. Um, and I just, I'm so proud of all of the work and all of the ideas that everybody brought to the table. You can't ask for anything better, really. So it's November. And for last night's dinner, I turned to your stewed chapter. I love stews more than soups. The stewed section walks us through 12 easy steps to get dinner on the table. Um, So my base was onion, sweet potato, and vegetable stock on top of some leftover rice and peas I already had. Can you talk a little bit about the process? As I was thinking about this book, one of the other things I came up against is how do these ingredients, which are often very interchangeable. How do we differentiate them? But also, how do we just show that they're similar and that you can apply the same preparation techniques to most of them? So that was the starting point for the technique portion. And there's boiled, stewed, fried flour in most of the the chapters. And then it was like, well, a lot of these techniques are really similar. And so how do we show that people don't have to follow an exact recipe, but have these basic elements? And so the grid that you're talking about is kind of my distillation of that, of if I'm going to take an ingredient and 
stew it with other flavors so that those flavors are represented in the final dish. What are the steps that I go through no matter what the ingredients are? And it's often starting with an aromatic base. It is adding a liquid to it, finishing it maybe with something crunchy, finishing it with something bright and acidic to really lift those flavors and then to give a bunch of options so that people can hopefully see how to mix and match some of these building blocks to get something different or to use up something that's in their kitchen already. And you have an herb, relish, and flavorful rig chapter to top your stew. So I use the garlic breadcrumbs. And I was wondering, what is a rig? (laughs) It's a made-up word. Uh, (laughs) And so, yeah, it's funny. This is like the other thing that happens is kitchens, they have their own, like restaurant kitchens kind of develop their own language. And so I realized my friend Erin and I, who cook together professionally, we often are making these kind of like chunky, acidic relishes, but relish kind of connotates like what goes on a hot dog or something like that, or like cranberry relish. And so relish wasn't quite the right word. And she always just used this word rig, like we're going to rig it up. And so I started using the word rig. And then maybe five years later, I was like, what does that mean to you? We defined it in the glossary. And she said, it's something along the lines of like kind of an industry describable, chunky, acidic condiment that, you know, blah, blah, blah. And and so it's really just a catch-all for these kind of weird condiments that we use a lot, which are not condiments like ketchup, but condiments like herb relishes or, you know, adding kind of like toasted walnuts and parsley and lemon and olive oil and a little bit of shallot makes this like really flavorful thing that adds a hit of brightness, a hit of texture, maybe a hit of salt to whatever you're finishing. And most of these grains and legumes, you know, they're really, if you think about kind of a spectrum of flavors, um, they're really a lot of base notes. They, They tend to kind of fill the hearty, warming, kind of anchor of a meal. And that can get kind of dull if it doesn't have something punchy paired with it. And so the condiment section is really kind of my most recent collection of ingredients and and condiments that we're using to kind of punch things up. I'm thinking the word rig totally works. (laughs) I think it does too. And, um, you know, somebody said, oh, it's like Jimmy rigging a situation when you've got like a half broken whatever and you're just like yeah. making it work. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that is kind of how it is. Uh, you know, it's just this thing that sort of ties everything together, but is also, you know, it doesn't have specific parameters. Like I feel like when you get into something like a pesto or these things that have like actual names, then, you know, you're kind of beholden to those recipes. And this is a little bit, it's a little bit freer. <laughs> Now to my segment called Dream Dinner Party, where I ask you who you most want to invite to your dream dinner party and why. And for this segment, it can only be one person. I would love to have a dinner party with Earl Butts, who was Nixon's Secretary of Agriculture and who I think spearheaded a lot of the agricultural policy that is problematic and is playing out problematically in our system. And just to be like, you're crazy. Don't do this. I don't know. That's not really like a heady. Maybe I've got a different answer, Susie. I don't know if we can just I did not see that one coming. 
Yeah, but, I didn't really either. It's not. I, I mean, love it. It's a super nerdy answer, but um, well, I love it because you want to talk to him about maybe changing his ideas for the future, and and so many people answer this with like, I just want to talk to them and bop bop bop. But you have an agenda for your dream dinner <laughs> party, and I love it. Yeah, I guess that's the secret. If I ever invite you over for dinner, there's like a, a secret motivation. <laughs> but no. I mean, I think it's true. I think that we're still navigating a lot of those things. And I I guess maybe I'd like to hear from him why he thought these things were good ideas. Because, you know, nobody behaves sinisterly just for the sake of being sinister. But I do think it's caused a lot of problems that we have to sort of reconfigure. Where can we find you on the web and social media? All of my social media is at Abra Barons, which is my first and last name. And um, outside of that, Grist is available at a ton of independent bookstores across the country, as well as the big boys like Barnes & Noble and Amazon. To purchase Grist and support the podcast, head on over to cookerybythebook.com. And thank you so much, Abra, for coming back on Cookery by the Book podcast. Oh, Susie, well, thanks for your time and for all that you do to create a space for authors to talk about their work. It's really valuable. Thank you. Follow Cookery by the Book on Instagram. And thanks for listening to the number one cookbook podcast, Cookery by the Book.